Welcome to the official tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with one of our usual suspects. We always have to do our Masters 1000 Grand Slam wrap up with Mr. Data, Mr. Analytics, Mr. Guy in the bunker with his pen and pad, Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Um, I just got back from the US Open. It, it, I was there for two weeks. It felt like eight. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's the most draining slam of all. It, it was a good tournament, some great matches. Um, it's tough. To, I think way tougher to be there for the duration than any other tournament that there is. But hundred uh, percent, you, you survive. And the matches, the, the tournament goes so late, and the process to get to and from, yes, the site, yes, makes it just a haul, right? And it makes the day just long. Add an hour and a half to the front and the back of your day, uh, in addition to sitting there watching matches in this thing. Before we get to Coco Sabalenka, because that'll take up the whole show, right? You and I normally, we, we dibble and dabble on the girls, and then we dive into the men's. I want to do the reverse. I want to uh, dibble and please. dabble in the men's, um, because I don't think anyone's surprised about what happened, because if we start talking about Coco and Sabalenka now, it'll just be the, the whole hour. So... <laughs> When I, when I look at, the, you know, when you look at a whole two weeks, right, and I was there for the first part of it, seeing the energy, talking to the players, touching, feeling them, seeing how them and themselves, A, were enjoying the atmosphere, sometimes a little too much, B, managing the atmosphere, or C, trying to just control their bubble within the atmosphere. And I think that process, probably those three sort of situations probably cost Francis a further run, right? Kind of getting caught in the matrix, right? Absorbing in a lot of atmosphere. Um, and then Ben, with the experience of his family, his dad, controlling the atmosphere, um, probably you know had a lot to do with his long run. Um, but I think the the match that I think had the biggest impact on the tournament was definitely Novak versus Yuri. Did you see the match? What did you think when Novak left the court two down two sets to love, goes to the bathroom and looks himself in the mirror? What happens? Yeah. Um, when he left the court, you know, it was he's down two sets to love. Jerry's controlling the back of the court with his backhand. His backhand was the best shot on the court in the first two sets. Um, but to be honest, even then, Novak goes in, he's still the favorite. Right. He's still the favorite down two sets to love. He's, he's, he's done it before. Um, you know, he's, it's one of those things where can, can your opponent play three blinding good sets out of five Maybe not, probably not. Um, when Novak goes in, you know, you just kind of reset, look in the mirror. He did exactly the same thing against Tsitsipas at the at Roland Garros, came out and just mowed over him in the last three sets. 
mowed over Jerry in the last three sets. It was a carbon copy. It's like Novak looks in the mirror and goes, okay, we've got that out of the way. Whether it's a combination of Novak being a little tight, playing, you know, a fellow countryman, it's a combination of early rounds being a bit tight. Um, it's a combination of the opponent just playing spectacular tennis. But you could see right from the start of that match, Novak wasn't, his A game did not turn up right at the beginning. He was pushing, he was prodding, he was he was spinning. Um, you, you know, just watching him play a thousand matches, you, you look at him as like, well, he's not there yet. And even after two sets, he's not there. But you know, it's sometimes for players, when you get down, it can relax you. It's like, well, I, got, I, I can't fall any further down this hole. I'm two sets to love down. May as well relax, may as well chill out, may as well believe in myself, may as well hit the ball. And Novak's the master of that. So um, not su- I'm, I'm not surprised by the final result. And I think overall it really helped Novak to play such a quality match and have to overcome some adversity early on. So I agree with you, very pivotal match for the men's draw. Well, let me ask you this, because from a coach's standpoint, when I see, I, when I see that type of performance, my mind goes to she wasn't ready to play, right? When I look at like Francis and Ben Shelton, it looked like Francis wasn't ready to play. When I'm sitting in the coach's box and my player goes down 3-0 or 4-1 and they're like deer in headlines, don't know what to do. It was like, what was not clear prior to the match? You've spent a lot of time with Novak. Novak's got one of the best teams out there. He's the most methodical and committed to his regimen. How does something like that happen to a player who's number one, Jerry is Serbian, right? So you knew who you were playing, right? Um, How do you come out not ready to play? I mean, is there a chance that at, at this big of an event, at this point in the event, that he just wasn't ready or wasn't clear on what to do or... You know, from being close and inside, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look back to Novak's seven matches, I think he will have a slightly different explanation for how he started in all seven. Is that you get all your ducks in a row, you you watch the video, you talk to the team, you get the game plan. Um, but at the start, it was like Novak, in that match, you know, he may, he may walk out there and, Sometimes he feels the energy of the crowd and it excites him. Sometimes you feel the energy of the crowd and, you know, you may go away a little bit and, and then come back. But I think I thought that he was attempting to work his way into this match, to start off even, to let his resume do the talking early, let the other guy go away, let the other guy spray balls, and it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. So all of a sudden... Um, the opponent's not missing a thing. The opponent's playing at a, a much higher level than Novak was. And you're just not ready for that. He's not ready for that. You're going to play a match like that, you know, in the course of a season where these guys are playing about 80 matches, you're going to have these subtleties with how the opponent's playing, how you're playing. Are you really ready? Are you working yourself into the match? Are you coming out guns blazing? And it was just a bad combination of layers for Novak where Jerry, Jerry threw the first punches. Novak's tasting blood, um, and it took him a couple of sets to recover. But there was never any doubt in my mind that he would still win that match. And I think that's the oddest thing. I think the odds makers, after being two sets enough, Novak was still the favorite. And I was like, wow. You know, that, that's probably the first time that I've, 
I've seen that. I'm not a better. But, you know, the odds makers were still favoring Novak. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, another pivotal match in the tournament, I think, was TFO Ben Shelton. Yeah, I was at that um, match. Were you at I think we all knew Ben Shelton could play. I, I thought yeah. it was very impressive him beating Tommy Paul, right? Yes. One of the things, and I don't know the reason for this, is when he beat Tommy Paul, the 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 crowd, obviously they had to choose both Americans, uh, Ben and Tommy. But when Ben beat Tommy, I was I was a little disappointed that the crowd was kind of quiet, right? But we don't have to harp on that. But I do want to point it out that the crowd was eerily quiet after the win of that. But with him and Francis, you know, one of the things that concerned me about Francis was in that New York environment with all the celebrities, with all the kind of like, and I mean, first of all, we got to keep it going. More non-tennis people, more non-tennis athletes, musicians, entertainers, artists showed up to the U.S. Open this year than I can ever remember. And we need to do that for the sport to grow. But you still got a tournament to play. Right. And this generation who loves that, loves the attention, will have to learn to balance how much is too much, how much gets me off kilter and how much gets me off track. And I thought that the day before the Ben match, you saw Francis with Bieber. I thought that that was a little too much and perhaps maybe took for granted that Ben would his pants because he, and he did right you know what i mean because so when you get to that point in the tournament when you are the veteran you you kind of expect the young guy to give you a couple yes. like ah, yes. if i just play solid he'll give me a couple he'll realize where he is and the shock factor will let him will you know cause him to make a few unforced errors or some bad decisions and it didn't happen and to me that goes in the book of Francis didn't look ready to play. And I think he'll learn from this experience on managing the energy, managing his energy for that late in the tournament. But I mean, Ben brought it. What was your take on Ben now? When you look at the stats, when you look at the 149 mile an hour serve, what is your take on him now having seen him play six matches? Well, um, the Tommy Paul match was really good. I liked how he managed the the ability to say, okay, this is a, a ball to pull the trigger on. I spoke um, spoke with his dad at the start of the tournament, and, and I, I mentioned um, possibly our discussion that we've had in other ones is that I think Ben's maturity is going to come from figuring out when there's one more ball that needs to be hit. There's just one more ball. Um, and, and I think maybe I talked to you about it last time, but it, it goes back to me to the 2000 Australian Open final Agassi beats Kafelnikov in four sets. Agassi's one in the world, Kafelnikov's two. Agassi goes to the post-match interview. Bruce McAvaney is, is interviewing him there, and um, they're watching some film, and Agassi's just going, you know, Kafelnikov moves well. He likes the ball up. The surface helps him, and he throws this line in there. He goes in the middle. He goes, and he's only looking to pull the trigger one time in the point, so he's a really tough opponent, and that just has always stuck with me, and that's what I said um, to Ben's dad is that, Ben Ben needs to just go, I could pull the trigger on this ball, but it's not quite the right one yet. I could pull the trigger on the next ball. He can, literally he can pull the trigger on every ball he hits. But his growth, his maturity, his tennis development and tennis IQ is getting better because 
you, you're hitting a ball that makes the opponent uncomfortable. You're hitting a ball that can extract an error. Um, and you don't always have to hit the winner. So Ben's development is going to be predicated on one more ball in the court and making a better decision on when to pull the trigger. And I thought he did a great job in the Tommy Paul match and a great job in the Francis TFO match of not pulling too early. Um, and then he went and played Novak and, and just everything went to hell in a ha- handbasket. And, um, <laughs> and, and it didn't. But, but that was, you know, I was, I was for the TFO match getting back to that. You know, I'm watching at the start. In the first kind of 10 minutes, um, it, it looked kind of even. You know, good decisions both sides, good points both sides. Francis was so quick coming to the net. He does such a great job of, you know, hitting a ball. And he's already leaning on it, you know, with his short little backswing on the backhand. And all of a sudden, he's, hit the, he's almost leaning over the net, spiking these volleys. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy has figured out, you know. Uh, the only person I saw that really blew me out of the water with that was McEnroe, John McEnroe. He looked like he went through a time warp, whereas it takes all, you know, the, all of us 1.5 seconds to move from the baseline inside into the service box, but he goes through this time warp that looks like 0.2 of a second. It's like, how does he get in there that quickly? Francis showed me that early on, but then the focus, the concentration, the, the locked in, the decision-making started to erode at around the 10 to 15 minute mark and he never recovered from that yeah so you get ben has novak in the semifinals um and i think that novak i mean just has this ability to you know it's what i was it's kind of what coco did i call it cumulative pressure mm-hmm. and it is I'm going to run the ball down. I'm going to make you hit an extra ball. I'm going to make you play one more ball every point on your serve so that later you feel it. You may not feel it now, but later you feel it. And that that was an example of what I call cumulative pressure that kind of got to Ben. What was your take on what Novak did to Ben vice or vice versa, what, what Ben did not do that match that he did the previous matches. Yeah, good point. That was that was a really fun match to be at. The the energy, the atmosphere, you know, the old guard, the new guard. Um, you're exactly right. There was, you know, on that court in 2018, I worked with Novak to defeat Del Potro. And a lot of the commentators, when you go back and, and go through that match, they're like, Del Potro is dropping 135, 138, and Novak's putting it back in his shoes. And the commentator's like, how in the world is he doing this? Well, there's only one way that you do that is that you study Del Potro's patterns and you know at a certain, when Del Potro needs a point in the juice court, he's going T, and when he doesn't need a point, he's going to go Y. Novak's sitting there on it. And I felt the same thing is that Ben's dropping heat, on, especially on first serves, and Novak is putting so many balls back in play that you're exactly right, that it just kept accumulating and accumulating. The other thing that really stood out to me that I don't know why is that Ben sliced so many returns, just this slow, it's not even like a Federer kind of knifing, dark slice. It's this blocking, slow slice that's not as good as Warinka's. It's not within a meter of the baseline. Um, There was ones he's just too defensive. So he's yeah. putting no pressure, no pressure on Novak because because he overdid the slice. 
Now all of a sudden he's got to deal with so many serves coming back. And then the decision making, then he starts, you know, the finger's kind of on the trigger, then he starts pulling it too much. And then, you know, Novak knows why this kid is, is potentially a real problem for me, but I've already figured out him out about 15 minutes in. Um, <laughs> he's not doing anything against my serve. Um, I'm doing everything against um, his serve and putting tons yes. back. You know, I'm just going to press cruise control and take a nap for the next 30 kilometers. Yeah, and I think that was probably the one mistake and probably a tactic that was misinterpreted was, hey, if you, on his serve, put pressure by making sure you get a racket on every ball. Not to bunt every ball, right? Because Novak not to is, bunt. Is, the, is, is, the, is the history, the best returner in history, but he's not the best server in history. Yes. And he, he, I don't want to call it vulnerable, but you will have an opportunity or two against Novak on his serve in a five-set match. And I thought Ben, with as great of a service he has, with as big of a service he has, he didn't take enough risk on the return games, and he didn't play. Correct. And when I say aggressive, I don't mean like crazy out of this world, rip winners, but controlled aggression. There was no reason Novak serving a buck 21, a buck 22, for you to block the serve back. You had, he had plenty of time to take a full swing and at least send a message for the rest of his career that your serve doesn't bother me, right? Part of being a young guy is how do I yeah. apply cumulative pressure that may not work this match, but in three or four matches from now in the next semi, right? Because you still got to go through Novak. Exactly. That shows him I'm not bothered by your serve and you better be, you will be bothered by my serve, right? And I think that was sort of a missed opportunity for Ben to take some cuts at Novak serve. And I think that set the tone for the match that allowed Novak to kind of steamroll. So yeah, one of the things I think about the game is, especially on the women's side, that it's gotten a little bit soft. We're a little bit happy for our opponents when we lose. We're not upset enough. We're happy for the other player instead of mad that I'm disappointed that I didn't win, right? Um, what did you think about the celebration, Novak celebration? Well, you know, I got to be really honest here. Um, I looked at him like, I don't, I don't know what that was about. So I missed, I, I, I heard about, I, I think I was walking by in the media cafe and Shelton was talking about a celebration and, but I didn't lock in who he got it from and I didn't lock in exactly what it was. So when I saw Novak do it, it I had to do five minutes of research to go, okay, now I understand. Now I, get it. Um, I think so, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite up to date with that. But, you know, when you look at it, it's not only Novak hanging up on Ben, it's Novak hanging up on anyone that's chasing him, especially the young kids. He's hanging up on all of them. It's like, you guys are not ready. You're not good enough. You're not disciplined enough. You're not consistent enough in the first four shots. You're not mentally tough enough. You can't hang with me yet hang up on all of you. Um, I guess I, the only exception to that would be Alcaraz, obviously. Um, right. But the rest, such as the up-and-comers outside of Alcaraz, uh, he, he figuratively hung up on all of them. Yeah, and I, and I feel that in pro tennis, you should not let the young gun in the next generation walk on tour. You shouldn't just make it easy for them to enter this market into this game and just start swagging all over everybody. 
you should send a message that I'm the big dog and don't try that stuff with me. And I, I actually, I actually think Ben appreciated it, right? I think Ben appreciated like, all right, you're the big dog. I, I got it. I got the message, right? You know, from a, from a former football player, right? And he's, yes. to me, he's tougher than most tennis players because he didn't play tennis that long, right? He played football. I yes. think that that was appropriate, the appropriate message from a guy who's saying, you guys are not, you can walk on tour, but you're not going to walk through me. Right, you're gonna have to fight your way past me, and I thought that that was excellent, and I think that Ben and his team it actually didn't bother them as much as it bothered everybody else. Right, it probably bothered every other player, the critics, but Ben's team was like, "I like that. I got you." What about what about the frosty, very quick handshake and gone? What about that? Um, that was quick. That so, was, so here's that the was thing. no kind words. There's no patting on the other guy's stomach or back. It was well done. And you know, both of them, it wasn't just one of them. Both of them were already turning. <laughs> well, well, Ben probably saw the celebration and he was like, had to process it. Right. So it was probably a little bit like a F you a little bit. Right. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. I, I think that there is too much of the patting on the chest I'm disappointed I lost, but I'm happy for you that you won. Like, no, bro, let me, I'm going to be pissed for 10 days that I lost this match. And I, and I thought that was that. And I thought that's what you saw from okay. two people that makes sense. who that's are a good great competitors and not like, oh, I'm happy I got to the final aid. Oh, it's a good run. No, like both people, like, no, I'm mad, right? And I'm not happy for you mm-hmm. in this moment, right? Mm-hmm. I'm mad for me. And I thought yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. And I want to see that. I don't want to see the hugs and, oh, man, play great. Congratulations. Good luck. Rooting for you. No, I want to say, damn, I should have won. Right? I want to see that. So. Yeah, good. I like that. That explains it well. Let's switch to the women. And I think Coco Golf, if you look at from start to finish, the number of three-set matches, the number of times where she was on the ropes, right? You look at the Mertens match. You look at Muhova. I mean, she was on the rope several times and sort of fought through it. And she said, you don't have to play my A-plus tennis win. Was it Sigmund in, the, Sigmund in round one? Sigmund. I mean, I remember being at the restaurant looking at it like, oh, this is tricky, right? And the crowd not liking mm-hmm. the way Sigmund was sort of doing whatever she could to win, chipping and charge and lob and drop shot, whatever it is. I mean, I enjoyed somebody that's saying i'm gonna come out here and muddy up the match and do what it takes to win mm-hmm. uh, but what did you think mm-hmm. about coco sabalenka loved it it was one of the best most enjoyable match women's matches i think i've ever been at ever i was so glad that i that i was there i was so glad to watch it i was so glad to to see the back and forth um i wrote um you know i write a lot for different publications and sometimes you know it, it, the demands are just kind of write the analytics and write the story and keep it sometimes a little too dry and i wrote this on my blog and and i loved it i really you know dove into the how the crowd got involved i dove into um how strong how quick and strong and defensive coco was it was it was incredible it was the speed of her feet 
was unbelievable. It was from another planet. It was a blur. Um, her attitude, all I did, as soon as the point ended, I walked on to Coco and she, the point went in and she turned, she'd walk to the ball boy, she'd get two balls, maybe a third, she'd throw one back, she'd walk to the baseline. It was so refreshing after watching so many male players try and just suck the time out of it and extend a two-and-a-half-hour match into a four-hour match because we're just wasting time winding the <laughs> clock down because we think that's a good idea. Um, so uh, there was, you know, they got to a point um, when the first game of the second set, she double faults on the first point. She double faults to go down 15-40. Then Sabalenka makes a return error, then puts two balls in the court and makes an error, then makes another return error, another return error. And the crowd, boy, was it loud. The crowd went ballistic. Then two games later, Sabalenka gets broken, and then the match, the, the crowd was deafening, deafening. So it was that 3-2 game, and um, Goff, was never, ever, ever going to lose after that point. That's when the match officially switched. The crowd was intimidating. The crowd went at Sabalenka. Um, but, you know, I, I just actually write, write um, I, I'm getting ready for my webinar um, this week on dynamic defense, and I'm using this match in, in that in that webinar. And, you know, Sabalenka's in a post-match interview talks about, well, you know, it was more about me and I'm battling myself and, Yes, Coco moved well. Um, the reason you're battling the self, the reason that you're feeling this adversity is that Coco brought that adversity into your world. And Coco handled it well, and Sabalenka is yet to handle it well. She's yet to do that. So, yeah, I loved it. I could talk for a month. I absolutely loved that match. So I think the, the, the game of the match, the game that will – make Sabalenka cut the ends of her hair, right? She's probably going to cut four inches off of her hair this week. Is that first game in the second when she was up 40-15 to break and literally just made five unforced errors? You know, I think Coco's ball got a little short. Sabalenka didn't step up. She covered the ball, started hitting the ball in the net because she was too far ahead of the ball. She never moved up. And I felt like, you see that from a lot of WTA players where they get ahead and then they get on their heels and they say, okay, I won the first set. Give me the second. Right. And you see their energy go yeah. backwards, right? Their weight goes yeah. backwards. Uh, the energy goes to the heels instead of moving forward to apply the pressure. And I think if you look at the way that Sabalinka missed, and if you look at her core position set one versus just, the first five games of the third or the second, you'll see the difference there. And that is why she was missing so many errors, not long, but in the net, because she didn't take her feet to the ball. She didn't go and get the title because it was right in front of her. I mean, Coco didn't do anything with the ball to hurt her. She just said, all right, Sabalinka, you have 25 winners in your, in your hopper today. After those 25 are gone, now it's a match, right? And so... After a set, those 25 are gone. Now Sabalinka has to step up in the court and finish, and she couldn't do it. And again, it's the cumulative pressure. And I would say it's a message to all juniors. You look at that first set of how many times Coco ran down an extra two or three balls only to still eventually yeah. lose the point, right? Just to set up the kind of pressure that would make Sabalinka press later on in the match. That is what I call cumulative pressure. We, saw, so we see so many players 
even pros, pull up. They'll run for a ball, realize it's a winner, and pull up. And they never sort of build that cumulative pressure to make somebody feel it at four all in the second or four all in the third, right, and make them see you going to get the ball. And so I thought that, A, Coco played for the long term in the first set, just running balls down, that she had no chance of hitting a winner on or even hitting a competitive ball back. Just let me touch the ball. Let her see me touch this ball. Uh, and then Sabalinka, that first game, really cost her the title. Um, and so it, it, yeah. it was it was painful to see a player implode there, but it was exciting to see somebody who was basically playing the match without a forehand, right? And still find a way to win. And I thought that is what I enjoyed the most. Yeah, agree. You know, you're right about the forehand. Watching the first set, Sabalenka appeared to know exactly what she was doing. She was going after Coco's forehand. Coco's, you know, she's got a big, big backswing. There's, it takes some time and you can rush it and, you know, you can hit a slow ball there and she can get ahead of it. And it just it looked clear. It's like, well, you know, you're going to play solid tennis, reduce backhand to backhand, amp up forehand to forehand, extract those errors. Everything went according to plan. But when things fell apart in the second set, I didn't see Sabalenka go back to that at all. Yeah, I, It was like she'd forgotten that. You'd forgotten <sighs> how you'd won the first set. Um, I'm going to read you, as I mentioned, the, uh, the, the blog. I, there's the blog entry I wrote on, uh, on this match. The last couple of uh, sentences here in the blog, because, again, I, I loved it, and it goes to what you just said earlier on. So here's what I said. This will take 30 seconds. It was a high-quality final. Goff's attitude was exemplary. In fact, this final should be required viewing by every junior tennis player on the planet uh, to witness what it's like to overcome adversity by staying strong and positive when things are not going your way. The USTA should mandate every junior in the country watch this match to emulate Coco's positive body language at all moments in the match. You should not be allowed to play a junior tournament without first studying this match, period. And to finish up with, Goff's attitude was incredibly strong. Her footwork was from another planet. Her small adjusting steps prior to contact were a blur. Her fist pumps made almost 30,000 people lose their marbles. Congratulations, Coco. A dynasty is born in New York. Glad to be watching from the stands. I, you know, I wrote that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, not, nice. Why not? Why right. not? As part of your, as part of your, you buy your USTA membership, and we're gonna, you know, if you're a kid. How old are you? You're 12. Good. Go and go and watch a highlight video of this match. We're gonna put in, um, we're gonna put this learning curve in there. It's like, look at the body language. Look at the footwork. Look at the defense. Um, Sabalenka, or you know, which was playing behind. Coco early on, all of a sudden is now playing open court and just letting Coco run to every ball. There was so much gold in this match. We can't just let this match drift off down the river like we do with everything else and be ready for the new match. We've got to, we've got to maximize the learning here for, for kids because it was phenomenal. Loved it. I agree. So you've got a webinar coming up. Um, tell us about the webinar and how we get access to it. It's called dynamic defense. So it's not just about defensive, um, 
you know, a defensive shot. So I'm just looking at, at one of my early slides here. It's having, you know, it's so much of what happened with Coco there. It's having a defensive mindset. So there's number one, which Coco did. It's like, okay, I'm playing a big hitter. Um, it's exactly the same as Novak did against Ben Shelton. What does that defensive mindset mean? It means I'm going to exactly what you said. I'm going to accumulate pressure over time, putting one more ball back in the court and, and shrinking the court and making players go for more than they need to. Number two, it's a defensive court positioning where we, we saw with Coco, um, and I, I took some, you know, some live pictures where she may be back for a shot, but as her shot is going to the other side, she's moving up closer to the baseline. So she's defending from further back, but moving closer to the baseline for the next shot. Defensive technique, learning how to block your way out of trouble, uh, learning that the number one place to go is cross-court on defense. Defensive movement, which Coco did so well, just floating back and forth with those little sh um, shuffle steps. And defensive shot selection. Um, so that's, again, what I thought Coco did a great job of. Sabalenka's ripping balls. And Coco just leans back onto the back foot and just goes a little higher and a little slower and gets the ball up out of the zone and doesn't give her power. So, you know, I, it's, it was a master class of dynamic defense by Coco. And I'm going to put that into Thursday's webinar. BrainGameTennis.com is my website. And um, you, can, you can sign up right there. Love my webinars. A hour and a half people. You know what the fun thing is? We get people from all over the world. We get, you know, so, where are you from? I'm from Japan. I'm from Slovenia. I'm from Sydney. Um, I'm from Rio. And, you know, they get to ask questions and I get to interact with them. And it's, um, it's a really fun way to, to help amateur players that are on it. Um, a lot of coaches come on it as well. And you get parents and kids that are there too. So fun times. Well, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show. I think that uh, this was wow, a U.S. Open to remember, especially for the women. U.S. Open to remember. And, I, you know, yes. just on the men's side, I thought it was an ushering in of a new big talent, big personality. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm excited for what's to come. I do. And I, and I do think it was, you know, Novak sending a message to everyone else that I'm still here. Right. And it takes, yeah. you know, youth and talent aren't enough to beat me. And I, I thought I enjoyed the back and forth. I enjoyed the gesture because I think yeah. that Ben and his team understood what it was without it being insulting. So we want to congratulate Coco. We want to thank Craig for joining us. It is always great. Um, I think our lab pre-US Open, I think, did you pick Novak? I think we both picked Novak. I did pick Novak, exactly. Yes, you <laughs> did. Yeah, yeah, you did too. But I had I had Eager, I think. I had Eager. You had Eager, and I abstained from choosing. Right. Yeah. I, or, or maybe I said Pagula. I don't know. I think I think I may have abstained from, <laughs> from choosing. Um, but in the back of my mind, you I was said it was gonna be a repeat, you said it was gonna be a repeat champion. That's what you said. Yeah, it'd be without naming it, so that was fine. And it wasn't. I was wrong, dead wrong. Um, but uh, Craig, thanks for joining the show, and we can't wait. Our next time with you, we will preview the Australian Open, brother. Excellent. Looking forward to it, Kamal. Always great to chat with you and and talk tennis, and um, really fun, really, really good tournament. I agree. All right, and anybody wants to continue the conversation on dynamic defense, you can go to Brain Game Tennis. 
uh, this Thursday for Craig's webinar. Enjoy.